Okay, thank you all for coming today. Um, I don't know about you, but I felt today was just such a phenomenal khutbah. Um, so powerful, such a perfect embodiment of why what we're doing here is necessary. Um, you know, the fact that, mashallah, you were able to bridge the gap between the academic world and critical thinking and the theological world, which unfortunately have come split apart in recent years, um, not only in your message, but you know, in, in your humility that you brought to it. It was just so beautiful and I was so touched. I know everyone here um, probably feels the same way. So thank you uh, for doing that and for stepping outside of your comfort zone um, you know, as an academic um, and for stepping into this more vulnerable position because there really was no better person to say say and give uh, today's khutbah than you, mashallah. Thank you. Takbir. <laughs> I just want to first of all say thank you to you and to all the other women who helped me to learn mm -hmm. and uh, create the space safe for me to share. Um, so it's been really great. Uh, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. For me, so I really appreciate that. It was beautiful. So just a reminder, uh, this is a safe space. We want you to always share vul vulnerably and share from the heart. Um, if at any time you share something that later on you decide you don't want us to publish online, um, just let me or Samia know and we can edit that uh, audio out. Um, we are only sharing the audio of the discussion, so um, please uh, use the space to really practice using your voice. Um, we want to hear from everyone and we especially want to hear from people who don't normally speak up. Um, so challenge yourself today. Um, this is your time to practice. Um, and as you guys know, we have our next Jummah, August 30th, inshallah, so please come out for that. Uh, mark your calendars. Make sure you're signed up on our mailing list because that's when we announce the details. Um, and please do donate today and also sign up to be a monthly donor because that is um, how we are sustaining ourselves through the next year, inshallah. Um, and finally, um, you know, I think Dr. Aram um, made such a strong case um, for women-led khutbas and jummas. Um, what really helps us uh, more than anything else is your participation and coming and telling others to come consistently. So please also spread the word online, share with your friends, um, encourage women to get into the habit of attending Jummah because a lot of women um, don't even uh, go to traditional mosques anymore. Um, so we want to change that culture and we want to change that normal. Um, and it'll take effort, it'll take consistent effort from all of us, um, you know, consistently showing up and making this a priority. Um, so with that said, um, is there anyone who would like to ask a question, share a reflection, um, anything at all? Hi. Um, thank you so much for the khutbah. It was really lovely and, and educational because I did not know about Asma. So thank you. I will go Google her. But um, I wanted to ask how you, what did you study and how long it took and just, you know, how many years does it take and what do you have to do to become uh, this wonderfully educated <laughs> and become, you know, uh, capable of giving khutbahs? You know, I <clears throat> never knew that I could do a khutbah. Um, I've been coming here for the last two years, I would say, and uh, just watching everyone and learning from all of around me 
that inspired me. And then I thought about delivering a khutbah because it was a space that I never knew it existed for me. And then I, of course, there are so many different topics that one could give khutbah. And uh, what was important for me, what is that I want to learn through this process? What is unique? Um, what I can bring? And I think these were the two questions that I asked myself. And um, so the, I think the idea of the social construction of knowledge is really important for me to uh, share. And so I wanted to dwell on that one. So that's how it came about. I would say I spent the whole month of July working on this khutbah. <laughs> um, I, and it's not like I didn't know some of the topic areas. Doing research about khutbah itself was really um, very time consuming. And I felt at the end that I had to just let go. I still have to do more research. So there's no end how much more you have to learn. I'm still a student. Um, I always consider myself a learner and I enjoy that. Um, so there's no end to sometimes you just have to take a break and say this is, this is all what I can do right now and there's a deadline and I have to meet the deadline. Your question raises uh, a very common refrain that we've always heard from almost every khatiba um, from the beginning up until now, uh, which is, I'm not worthy, someone else should do it, I'm not qualified. Um, and what I always, the winning line that I have to convince all of these khatibas is, do you think that random uncle that gets up in the mosque <laughs> thinks, asks if he's worthy or not? Um, you know, we, we put so much more pressure on ourselves as women to be perfectly qualified um, when the, the whole beauty of Islam is that there is no religious hierarchy. We don't have a priesthood, we don't have a pope. Um, this is the essence of Islam and we have lost that tradition along the way. So um, uh, not to say that you know, anyone should do it, but um, I think that uh, that hang up is common to hear from everyone regardless of their experience. And I, I think there's no, I mean, from hearing of all of these women, you know, and their hesitations over the past four and a half years, there's literally no amount of preparation that ever gets that feeling to go away. Um, it's literally only doing it that you realize that this, this is uh, your place. Yeah. Tell us more about the 12 wives of the prophet. You know, that was uh, Gail Kennard's uh, khutbah. Um, that's what I, um, summarized. Um, she may be a better person to answer that question, uh, but what I understood by talking to her is that she wanted to see um, these women, not just wives, but that they are the disciples who are learning um, the Quran and by being close to the Prophet Muhammad, they are the preachers, they become the best preacher to spread the word. So their place is not just the wife of the prophet, but their role is he, they are the disciples who are spreading the word of the prophet by being, by being close to him. Nobody else can be as close to him as his wives. Did they collaborate together? Because I know that uh, probably Khadija was younger, but 
Did at some point in time, did some of these women, you know, did they have some kind of synergy going on? They did. They did at different parts of their history. If you look at the history of the, uh, his biography, um, some of the women, um, um, like, they, they established different um, groups and they came together and they learned and they transmitted hadiths and... Um, there was a lot of stuff happening in the household. It's a, it's a long history, long and complicated history, so I have not um, paid that attention to the lives right in the recent past, so I'm a little hesitant to give you specific answers. I'm sorry if well, it's... That's a good start. <laughs> and uh, Gail's Klippa is online on YouTube um, and on iTunes, so you can watch it and listen to yeah. it there. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Um, Priscilla, did you have some? Welcome, and I enjoyed your talk, and yes, I learned something as well, but I wanted to welcome you to, I don't want to say the club, <laughs> for that gets taken in some kind of way, but... Um, you're now an alumni, and what you learned, and what we all learned, when uh, those of us who have had the chance to... Um, oh, 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 here we go. I, that wasn't planned. <laughs> um, what we learned when we uh, took on the task of, of being a Katiba and giving a Koopa was, in doing research, you never can stop. It just goes on and on and on, and you have to literally make yourself stop. Yeah. Um, just so that you can get up there and say something that makes sense, you know, not like, because you know, that's how you feel because you're learning so much. So um, I want to welcome you. And um, I'm going to say what I said to everybody else, you know, there's a part two and there's a part three and we like to hear those things. Thank you. Um, I have a question. So um, I think one of the strongest cases that you made in your chutbah was to talk about how uh, the classification of what a chutbah is changed um, and how it was uh, originally a more general speech and then started to, or the evolution of the chutbah, um, started to only be considered um, part of the mosque experience. Um, so can you talk more about what you were saying about the three women, um, the prophet's daughter, peace be upon him, um, wife, and uh, who was the last one? Was, uh, Fatima. Fatima, Aisha, and Zainab. And so Fatima al-Zuhra, she gave uh, two speeches. One is um, at um, the death of her father, the Prophet Muhammad, um, and she um, gave that khutbah. Well, that was called khutbah. Even if you do research today and you look for Fatima's khutbah, it will be classified as a khutbah. Even Aisha's khutbah and the speeches that she gave um, at the battle, Battle of Camel, um, that will be classified as a khutbah. Uh, Zainab's sermon or khutbah is also in the court of Yazid. Um, so before I move on, let me just also mention Aisha, um, Prophet's wife, gave the khutbah at a mosque in Mecca. So, Fatima and Zainab's khutbahs are outside of the mosque, but one of Aisha's khutbah is in a mosque. And that one is, I even have a footnote somewhere, I ended up not 
putting too much time on it, including it in the in my um, talk today or in my khutbah today, um, because I had to exclude a lot of stuff. But that was very interesting because most of the time people thought, oh, women, um, these women, they are recorded and that these women gave khutbahs, but at the same time they didn't give in a mosque. But then Aisha's khutbah is in a mosque, so that's really important to mention. Uh, why these khutbahs then were classified into other categories and why then only the Friday prayer and Eid prayer was used to be called khutbah. I am not, I still, that's a part of the research that I have to do when that, it happened during the Abbasis regime. Um, about uh, how many years after the death of the prophet? No, we're talking about the um, 750, that's the time frame um, when the Abbasis uh, come to power. So the Prophet Muhammad died in the year 632. So there's about 100 to 100 years. That's when the empire expands after the, the, uh, the end of the Omiyads. Um, they expand the empire too. Um, but the Abbasis then starts to, um, they also try to bring in, make it a little more religious because they felt that the Omiyas have made it too secular. So there was a difference of opinions about how the government should work, what khutbah should include, how the religious services should run. And there's a history and there's an evolution. And Laila Ahmed spoke in some way this really great when she talks about this idea that the way we see Islam and the, 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 um, all the scriptures, the way they have been canonized, it makes us see Islam as much more traditional, but it could have gone in a different direction depending on the rulers and the people who were ruling um, uh, that part of the world that is called Muslim world or the Islamic world. Um, so there's a lot of intervention, there's a lot of subjectivity that many times um, the traditional scholars or the mainstream scholars try to shy away and they not want to highlight that. But I, in, in my opinion and learning about the history of Islam, what I find that is the beauty is to have that diversity, is to have those different ideas and then understand, oh, Islam could have been practiced this way too. So I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's amazing. Uh, yeah, the, the history of Islam has been lost and I think that's where so many of our answers are. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times people uh, in outside of the Muslim community will say, oh, does Islam need a reformation? We already have everything within our tradition that we need. Um, what we really need is a revival um, of, of what the Prophet, peace be upon him, originally spread. So that's amazing. Uh, anyone else? Yes. I was curious about the matrilineal Muslim society that you studied, and I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, it is uh, such a... Um, pleasure for me to be able to work on that documentary and learn more about um, it's called Mina Kabao and it I Mina Kabao and trust me the very first time when I was trying to pronounce it I was really <laughs> butchering it um, so I learned about it through my graduate years at Berkeley um, 
I just wanted to know more about, I always was very intrigued about women, why the way they are and why it must be a reason, you know, must have been a sometimes when women had higher position or at least much more egalitarian um, spaces were available. Um, so it was through that inquiry I learned about Mina Kabao. Of course I did not know that they were Muslims, um, but when I did a little more research, I found out that's the largest matrilineal culture in the world right now. Um, so they are in West Sumatra. It's still a living culture. And my documentary is available online. It's on for free. And if you put in uh, matrilineal Muslim women of Minang, it should show up. Or even if you put in my name sometime, it shows up. Um, so there are five million inhabitants uh, who continue to practice Islam and also include matrilineality. So matrilineal cultures, they are not really unique to Indonesia and uh, some other parts of the world. Of course, we had matrilineal traditions here also. Uh, some, of that, um, some of the cultures and the tribes, they practice matrilineality as well as other parts of the world. For example, there are some in uh, Africa, there are some in China, there are some in India and other parts of the world. And it's really important for us to know and document that history. Um, I sometimes ask my students to imagine a world where the gender relations are, you know, we have much more equality in, in, in our gender relations. And sometimes my students, and I know myself, surprise, that it's hard for us to even imagine because we don't even know that, that it's possible. So in that space, when there is nothing available for us to know that there's a space that exists where there are women who have higher position or they have more equal positions available, it's very refreshing. Um, but yeah, so I had the opportunity to go there twice and I uh, worked with some women and uh, there are books written about it. Um, it's not just my documentary, but there are books, very reputable uh, press um, like um, Brown and other universities and their scholars also, but many times those scholars are in academic spaces and, and even women and gender studies, they don't teach about them, partly just because it's more placed under ethnographies and cultural studies as compared to, or anthropological studies as compared to women and gender studies, debates um, and uh, ideas about how to teach. Um, so, yeah, but uh, it's been really fun for me to work on that documentary and learn more about it. I'm sitting here and from the beginning I was like this sister has all this knowledge and she's hesitant about sharing it because of the word kutba if you don't share the information it leaves the planet with you you know uh, so I thank you so much for it I'm looking forward to, as she said, part two is coming up. Um, I had two specific questions. You spoke of the women who 
were around the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings on him. The name of the sister who actually defended him with her shield during battle, but also I read about some sister, who, I don't remember what battle this was, but it was in Medina, and the Quraysh were approaching, and the men I think were somewhere off, and this one sister, I think maybe Um Salama, I'm not sure. No, that was Nasiba. I'm sorry? That was the woman that I mentioned. She, she is the one who, uh, when it was the Battle of Ohad, okay. um, and then the army started to retrieve, she is the one, she, she stayed, and um, then the army, the soldiers were about to attack the Prophet Muhammad, and so she used her shield to protect him. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. So that's one, but then this other situation is where the Quraysh were going to come over this wall in Medina because the men were not there. I, I don't know exactly what it was. And this sister actually, some, one man came over the wall and the whole idea was if he could get over the wall, he could signal the others it's okay to come over. And she took his head and literally threw his head back over the wall which was a pretty good indication that, no, somebody is what mine in the store over here, you know. Uh, but you've heard this story before? Can you give me the name? I or? don't know that story. Okay. I okay. have to say, I will okay. look it up okay. to see. And you see, this is how we're talking about learning yeah. and teaching. You're mm -hmm. teaching me about another story, so I really appreciate that. Alhamdulillah. Um, I don't know about that one, but I'll okay. look it up. Okay. Another practical question. Mm -hmm. When Aisha gave khutbah, did she lead the prayer? Did she lead it in front of the men? And practically, how do women bend down in front of men? Yeah, and you know, I don't have, I know that she gave that khutbah, the one that I mentioned, in a mosque in Mecca. But I'm assuming this is the khutbah where she was uh, asking people to um, avenge the uh, death of Halif uh, uh, Usman. So it was not, again, the Friday khutbah. Um, so it, because of the fact that in the past all of these sermons and speeches are classified under khutbah, so if you look up Aisha, many times um, that, khutbah, that sermon would come f under Aisha's khutbahs and it's still categorized that way, but it will be today, from a today's understanding of what khutbah is, if it's only connected with Friday prayer, then that would not be, um, it would not be the Friday khutbah. It's a, it's a speech, in other words. I don't have a, I didn't find so far any record of a woman giving a Friday Friday khutbah, and especially in front of men um, in a mosque. So that's something I have not found yet. Doesn't mean that it didn't exist. Of course, all the records are written by men, and so it's always um, intriguing to see what they wrote and what they didn't write. So it's, I, I don't know. I have to but you mentioned Amina Wadud. Amina Wadud did that in 1994. And she did it before uh, uh, she, she did that in front of us. It was a khutbah, it was a mixed congregation in uh -huh. South Africa. Okay. Technically, just logistically, did she lead the prayer? She led. 
Uh, was there any partition there? No, the one that she did in New York here in year 2005, there was no partition also. Um, and as for your question about um, women leading men in prayer, um, uh, of the four or five uh, Orthodox classical scholars, um, Shafi actually said that women can. Um, and so, um, and actually the scholars debated when a woman, I think many of them agree, you know, whoever is most qualified. So, for example, if there is an uneducated man, um, of course the woman is going to lead. So how does she lead? Um, so they debated about the best way where, if, uh, where maybe she should um, lead in front with a barrier and then he's behind or um, side to side. Um, so the, even these are, you know, things that the scholars um, already discussed, but has, but by today's, um, you know, standard of knowledge and lack of knowledge would seem taboo. Um, Can I just add yeah. one thing, Samia, come to, you know, I went for Hajj last year, and one thing that really surprised me to see, now within, close to Kaaba, now outside of the Kaaba walls, um, and then you get into the larger mosque, you have the, the army soldiers trying to create segregated areas. But close to Kaaba, men and women pray together. Mm -hmm. It's just not possible for them to create those separations. And I saw in my own eyes women clinging to the walls of Kaaba and crying. Who will dare to remove that person? You know, and that when the time comes for prayer, then they're praying and you cannot remove these women. And so the idea of that creating their segregation and then thinking about, oh, who's front and who's behind. And I think these are all thoughts that have come up to us because we paid more attention to them. Otherwise, as I saw in Hajj, they are front, they are back. In close to the, especially close to Kaaba, where there's a much more proximity of these people. Um, so I just wanted to add yeah. that. And even during the Prophet, peace be upon him's lifetime, there was never a barrier. Um, it was men, then the children, and then women. Um, but they all prayed in the same room. And it was after his death, um, his companion, Omar, um, is the one who uh, started the tra tradition of having a physical barrier. Um, and also, um, Umaraka, so there was, uh, I believe this was the third mosque that the Prophet, peace be upon him, established. Um, he appointed Umaraka um, to head that mosque. Um, there's debate whether it was her household, there's debate whether it was her town or her community, um, and whether it was, uh, I think largely people do believe that it was mixed though, men and women, um, but whether it was her household or community, she would have been giving those khutbas and leading those Friday prayers, so regardless. And just one more really important thing that I learned, um, actually from one of the videos, um, uh, Sheikha Arima, and we can share that link uh, with anyone who is interested. It's on YouTube. Uh, she gives, uh, Sheikha Arima has this hour long video, right, where she gives the very detailed research based um, analysis of this whole issue of women leading prayers and stuff. And one of the things that really struck me about what she said was that, you know, even when it comes to all these questions of like, 
uh, well, how do practically women stand in front and bend in front of men and all that kind of stuff. So there's actually absolutely no scriptural uh, basis for uh, prohibiting women from leading men in prayer uh, with or without, without a screen. And the only reason that the scholars were even talking about, uh, you know, should we put a screen or something like that, is because of the culture of the people, where, you know, the people were feeling uncomfortable about the idea. And so the scholars were trying to come up with solutions. But if you just look at the scripture, whether you look whether it's the Quran or even the Hadith, there is absolutely no basis for prohibiting women's leading prayer in any context. Thank you so much, Iram. That was so incredible. Um, I'm still <clears throat> um, really worked up and moved. Uh, but I just didn't want to resist asking you to talk a little more about um, the language and gender dynamic and the subject of translation and uh, how you see our concepts of gender, gender as you said, the so socially constructed knowledge in terms of translation of sacred text or um, translation of... Uh, ideas into the most clear, digestible, shared form, and how that maybe is something that the concept of being woman is actually related to, or a social construct of, of what being woman is, is related to? I guess the absence of women in this space, in this leadership space, has been always perplexing. And for me, then, conducting research about khutbah and then noticing that there were so many people who were debating about whether or not khutbah should be in Arabic or not in Arabic, reminded me, reminded me that how there's still a conversation happening, women should be leading the prayer or not leading the prayer. And those arguments were so parallel that I found they were so, they, I found it like a perfect analogy. I mean, it wasn't, um, somebody wrote, I read an article about the language, um, and they, they went on and on about talking about whether or not there should be, um, Arabic should be the language. And it's still a debate. If you, if you start doing research about the, 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 the religious um, body, you will find this debate about Arabic or not Arabic still very... Um, current, it's still going on. It's not like it was resolved. Um, and then I just thought about it and I said, how we are using the same kind of an argument to talk about women should be leading the prayer or not leading the prayer. Um, and who is making those decisions? Who have been given the power to make those decisions? Um, and I think that's where I found that um, comparison. And for us, there is so much left out. For example, Asma story, I never learned about it. And then most of the mainstream discussions, they're just leaving out the names of these women, their narratives, their discussions. And they're saying, oh yeah, because they need to stay in private. They are, we are respecting them. There's a lot of respect connected with that concept also. 
Or we are respectful to these women, that's why we don't want to bring them. And then these women also don't want to be in public. And I find that very interesting. What kind of respect is this that we are erasing them? It just made me angry, I think. <laughs> so I, I, I guess that is um, part of the discussion. And the, the, the comparison also that I found with the, talking about the histories of African Muslims who have been erased in learning about the history of the, Amer um, and connecting with the American history. I think sometimes even for men, for Muslim men, it is easy to understand, oh yeah, those narratives should be included in American history. Those people should be brought out and we should talk about, learn about them. Then why now we should learn about the lives of these women? Um, and so it's, um, I like to bring in that example because they wanna talk about those narratives and how they contributed um, these African Muslims who were brought over to the US and there's a, written here, there are archives of them writing in Arabic and there's a written in Quran, documented Quranic a history um, of writing in, in Arabic of some Arab Quranic surahs. So if we wanna make that part of history, of American history, why not we wanna make stories and the narratives of these women part of the Islamic history? All this makes so sense to me. It just sometimes, I don't know why some people don't understand it. So I find that, you know, I, sometimes I end the argument to say, I'm sorry, it's your limitation. I can't, I can't explain more. It's all clear to me. So I'll just leave it here. I don't want to dispute more. Assalamu alaikum and thank you for this amazing khutbah. Um, I just want to say, like, a, um, as she said, like, sister, like, about the, um, what is culturally, we are always behind. And you also just said now that women don't want to be, like, a mention, and that's true. I can tell for myself. I'm, I'm not going to say who I am, like, until you ask me three, four, five times. And if somebody says, oh, I'm going to put you in the spot, i like, no, 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 no. No matter how much, uh, like, uh, you know. Uh, so that's true, too. And the other thing is, like, uh, you know, like, uh, I remember Dr. Hadouth, I think everybody knows that Dr. Maher Hadouth always said, like, uh, if there is no mention of haram, then everything is halal. So if there is no mention of that, women cannot give khutbah and women cannot lead the prayer, then it is like a permitted to do that. But the thing is, I think we women never stood up for it in that to, like, you know, of course we have to stood up that strong to fight like millions of men, right? So I think it never happened and that's why we are not there yet. But thank you, Hasna, what you did. <laughs> um, my two girls, I, I get so emotional today that they made up their mind since like a few days before that they will come to Friday prayer, and they did by bus. 
and they beat me. And she texted me. She texted me, we beat you. So I can't, I can't say enough. And thank you so much. God bless you. And I want lots of Hasna. And inshallah, we will, we will, we will develop again. So, yeah. Keep beating her. <laughs> um, you know, it, the funny thing is that there aren't millions of men to fight. When we started, we had so many male supporters, and we still do, and they are some of our most passionate supporters. Um, and I think so much of what keeps us down is the internalization of maybe a few messages we might have picked up, or a lot of women sometimes will keep other women down. Um, and I think really the key is uh, choosing faith over fear. If It doesn't matter if your sense of fear comes from your culture or your sense of fear and distrust comes from your family or politics. If you're in a state of fear rather than trusting God and being in a state of faith, you will always only choose what you see and what is proven to you. But if you believe in the unseen and you believe in God, then you will trust what's in your heart. I mean, you don't have to have things proven in front of you in a physical manner in order to believe in them. So I think that's, that's really the key. You, I, I cannot tell you how many people, if I say, oh, they said, oh, I did not see you in the Friday prayer in the Barmont Mosque. And I was like, oh, I went to the Women Mosque. And you don't know how the reaction is. So I was like, should I tell them where I was? <laughs> that, yeah, true. It's also the tipping point, right? The more you say it and normalize it, you give permission to others. And 100% my experience has been anyone who is ever, you know, resistant or curious or anything, as soon as they experience it, they realize that it's nothing like what they imagined and there's nothing to be to be resisted. It, um, uh, Dr. Aram and I, uh, I always joke with her because she's like, really, nobody nobody comes to you and says you know, things? And I'm like, no, maybe they're scared of me, but nobody, <laughs> nobody ever says this stuff to me directly. Um, but I hear it from others, so I'm sorry that, that you have the, <laughs> to bear the bread. Um, but please just keep inviting people and keep telling them and, and pass along the videos. I mean, that should speak for itself experience the women's mosque because we know just as Hasna says once they come then whatever has been told or whatever they assumed will be false you know they'll find that out and so you know that's our hope so we'll keep inviting our, our sisters and you know we'll keep looking at that little eye twitch but we'll keep inviting them. <laughs> okay, before we end, is there any one last person who'd like to ask a question? I see a couple of new faces, anyone? No? All right, well, thank you so much. This is amazing, and um, inshallah, we hope to see you all again um, next month. Please invite everyone, and please make it, make it a priority in your life to come and do this for yourself, because um, you might not see how it transforms you in other spaces, but I'm sure it does, um, and, and it can have a ripple uh, effect on our community that way. So please keep coming back, inshallah. Thank you so very much. Assalamu alaikum. Okay, thank you all for coming today. Thank you so very much. Assalamu alaikum.